And good morning, everyone, or good afternoon, or good evening, whatever the case may be around this rotating globe. Welcome to another edition of The Other Side of Midnight, that magical time between dusk and dawn, when just about anything can be discussed or sometimes even happen. Um, This morning, we have a remarkable show for you. From the Land of Enchantment here in the desert north of Albuquerque, New Mexico, Uh, we're going to be talking about interplanetary and interstellar communication. And we're going to cover the waterfront, mixing our metaphors madly. Before we do that, however, I do want to kind of uh, hit a couple of news items here at the top. Again, if you go to theothersideofmidnight.com, that's our URL, theothersideofmidnight.com, and that will take you to our URL. At the top, you will see a banner which says Calling Occupants of Interstellar Craft. And our guests this morning, David Sarita and Jimmy Blanchett, click on that. Um, that will take you down to the guest page for our guests this morning, David and uh, Jimmy. And I'll introduce them momentarily, but if you click on the uh, fast links right below the banner where it says fast links to Richard. That takes you to a section of the radio with pictures page where we have our news items. Item number one, we're leading of course tonight as we've done for many weeks now, ever since September with the latest on La Palma, the volcano that's erupting for the first time in over uh, 30 plus years. Um, the reason La Palma is important is because in 1949, there was a major quake and eruption and about half the island split. And so one half is resting on the other half. And given a sufficient seismic disturbance, the modeling says that one half could slide into the Atlantic Ocean, in which case it would be a bad hair day for everyone all around. There is discussion of mega tsunamis, waves racing across the North Atlantic Basin at six, seven hundred miles an hour, tidal waves, tsunamis coming ashore that could reach uh, over a hundred feet tall, going inland for maybe 20, 30 miles. Needless to say, that would cause havoc and an extraordinary catastrophe for everyone around the North Atlantic Basin. Now, the times will differ If this extraordinarily low probability event were to occur, you wouldn't have much warning in the north coast of Africa or in Europe. You'd have much more for the eastern seaboard of the United States. But the waves could reach as far as the Gulf of Mexico, the shores there going around the uh, uh, tip of Florida. And they could reach the islands in the Caribbean and even the northern coast of South America. So... That would be a very bad event. So what you want to do, if you have a smartphone, and everybody does these days, you want to put the um, La Palma uh, link that I have posted on the uh, guest page tonight on your smartphone. So if there's a major seismic event, it will ring. It will alert you, and you uh, have packed a go bag if you're along the coast, and you can be ready to leave in minutes, and you go inland more than 20, 30, 40 miles, or you go up in altitude. If you're near a coast with mountains, you want to go up. You know, remember that scene from Deep Impact where the kids were riding on the uh, motorcycle and they went up and up and up and up? Now, that, uh, you know, um, demonstration was for an asteroid striking just off the East Coast with no warning. But in this case, if you're along the East Coast of the United States, you will have hours and hours of warning so you can uh, get out of Dodge. Again, this is a low, low probability event, but in this era of being on a wired planet, it is better to be safe than sorry, and I've alerted my family who are living along the East Coast, and they are, uh, they are prepared. Item number two. Um, item number two is important because it feeds into the larger conversation we're going to be having this evening as to who is out there, who is wanting to talk to us, and is everybody friendly? Uh, As you know, for a couple years now, I have maintained 
that COVID-19 is in fact uh, an, an alert that we are at war. This is biowarfare coming from upstairs, not from China. China was the first victims because um, they did something that displeased the folks upstairs and uh, they've taken it out on China and China being a very secretive and face-saving society obviously is not going to admit this. So they kind of tried to hide what was going on and the result was a catastrophic world pandemic which is still raging. Now, we've had several variants uh, three now that are on record. There was Alpha. There was Delta, which is very much more contagious. And I obviously think that there is no, um, shall we say, coincidence in the naming of the Delta variant. Because if you look, as we did years ago, at the spike proteins on the coronavirus known as COVID-19, you'll notice that they are little tetrahedrons. Proteins arranged geometrically as little tetrahedrons. I need not tell this audience what the significance of tetrahedrons are in the larger scheme of things. So isn't it interesting that a virus which is sweeping the world and is the worst pandemic in over a hundred years would have this specific geometric redundant shape? And then the World Health Organization, this kind of mysterious global medical establishment which has all kinds of questions swirling around it, out of the blue they decide to call the next variant of this COVID-19 tetrahedral-shaped spike protein virus a Delta variant. Well, of course, a Delta is an equilateral triangle in two dimensions, which is a tetrahedron in three. You see why I'm kind of suspicious about a lot of this? Anyway, now we've got a new variant, which apparently originated uh, in South Africa and is incredibly virulent. Uh, I've seen some numbers uh, like three times more contagious than the Delta variant, and they've decided to call this one, again, this is the WHO, the World Health Organization. They've decided to call this Omicron, which is the 15th letter of the Greek alphabet. Now, Omicron is interesting because as soon as the uh, World Health Organization posted this nomenclature, Twitter erupted in a whole bunch of incredibly intriguing speculation connecting the Omicron variant with the Decepticons in the Transformers series a la the comics, the cartoons, and the major motion pictures. And of course, the Decepticons are bad guys. They're bad AIs. They're bad robots. They're the enemies of the uh, uh, good guys, the good guy robots in the Transformers series, and also uh, of the human species. Well, is this all just coincidence? Again, My model for two years has been that COVID-19 is biowarfare by someone upstairs that does not like us and has been throwing us curveballs because it's much easier to defeat an alien species if you do it biologically than if you use ray guns and spaceships and try to invade cities, etc., etc., etc. Now, everyone has focused in the COVID-19 disaster on the number of people who die. I have been focused on the number of people who live. In fact, about 30% of everyone who gets COVID-19 has what's called long COVID, where symptoms go on for weeks and months, and in some cases, for the duration from the beginning of the pandemic. And in a war, The name of the game is to debilitate your enemy by forcing them to take care of the wounded, the casualties, those who are injured, uh, as opposed to killing uh, the enemy outright, because that saps resources that could be used in the confrontation, in the fight, to take care of people on the home front. Is this, in fact, the strategy? 
the fact that something like 30%, I've seen numbers varying from 20 up to maybe 50, have this long COVID and all of these support groups now and all the medical institutions which are trying to run lengthy studies to find out how and why and why there's persistence of symptoms. In other words, if you debilitate 30% of everyone who gets COVID-19, if you create a campaign which encourages as many people as possible to get COVID-19 or to be exposed to it, and how do you do that? Well, you spread vicious lies and rumors that the vaccine is really a plot. It will kill you or change your DNA. It's chipped. It'll put some kind of nano bug in your system. It will somehow allow them, whoever them are, to eavesdrop. You drop in names like Bill Gates and, you know, uh, Anthony Fauci and you mix well and you've got an incredible offensive propaganda campaign. Remember, the first casualty in any war is truth. And so no one knows which way is up. You have a huge portion of the population in the United States, it's uh, I think about 30% now, who are determined to remain unvaccinated, which means they're vulnerable to the, uh, to the, to the virus. And 30% of those people that come down with it will develop long covid a certain percentage will horribly die, adding to the almost 800,000 people who have died in the United States so far, not counting the millions around the world. In other words, are we being set up in an interplanetary or interstellar or maybe even interdimensional war? And that, of course, delves deeply into who are we really? What are we doing on this planet? What are ruins doing all over the solar system? Why has NASA been keeping all those images and analyses and data secret? And why did the WHO decide to name the latest variant Omicron, which of course is one of the bad guys in the Transformers series, which is spearheaded by a director, Michael Bay, who seems to know an awful lot about interplanetary conflagrations. Is this all coincidence? Well, many, many decades ago, a famous president, FDR, said in politics, there is no such thing as coincidence. Give you an example. About two weeks ago, if you go to item number three in my section of Radio with Pictures, the Russians did something bizarre. They apparently uh, shot down with a surface-to-air missile, one of their own um, obsolete satellites, a spy satellite that they apparently had chosen uh, for target practice to demonstrate that they, in fact, can shoot down satellites. The problem with this scenario is the Russians are not dummies. The Chinese did something very similar to a weather satellite of theirs some years before, and it caused a huge international havoc because when you fragment a spacecraft in low Earth orbit, the pieces fly into all kinds of different orbits, creating a screen of extraordinarily fast-moving projectiles, shrapnel, which can penetrate a satellite at something like 17,500 miles an hour if you're in the wrong orbit, disabling it, exploding it, taking it out, creating more fragments, in other words, kind of like the uh, uh, you know ping pong balls on a set of, of, of uh, loaded mouse traps in a sealed room, a chain reaction. I have met, I've said, and I firmly believe tonight, even more so, that the Russians did not shoot down their own spacecraft, because for one thing, it required the movement, literally the uh, firing of, of uh, thrusters on the International Space Station and moving it out of the way of some of the debris, which reached as high as the orbit of the space station, which is about 260 miles above the Earth. And there are Russians aboard the space station. So what idiot, or was it Putin, who authorized shooting down, or exploding actually, because the pieces don't go down, uh, destroying, exploding, 
detonating, fragmenting one of their own spacecraft when, in fact, three cosmonauts aboard the space station would be in immediate jeopardy as they were and will be for months and months and months to come as fragments change orbits, as they collide, as a whole tier of orbits becomes less safe due to the nature of celestial mechanics. Or if the Russians didn't do something so incredibly dumb and stupid and very undiplomatic, is it possible they are covering, like all governments are covering, during the pandemic for the fact that we secretly are at war? And they all don't want us to know because that would open the big secret that we are not alone and the even big deeper secret, which is there are folks out there that do not have the best of intentions toward life on planet Earth. And that is such a can of worms that no one wants to go there. So the Russians are taking the short-term political hit in order to defer, to delay the revelation that we are in some kind of interplanetary or interstellar war. In fact, it may not even be our war. We may be kind of like Vietnam was the casualty of the confrontation between the U.S. and the Soviet Union. Suppose we're in some backwater in this spiral arm, and suppose the war has been ebbing and flowing across this part of the galaxy for thousands or maybe even millions of years. And there are some long periods of time when nothing is occurring. And then there are times when the war flows back across this tiny solar system in the big perspective of the galaxy itself. That could be one scenario. I happen to think it's a little more direct than that, but uh, we can get into that as we have a conversation with our guests of the morning. The, the fact of the matter is that there are too many coincidences going on for um, comfort or security or putting your head in the sand and pretending nothing bad is going on. Item number four. Again, coincidentally, this week, a few days ago, NASA launched a mission designed to crash a spacecraft at something like 15,000 miles an hour, that's about four miles per second, into a double asteroid in about 10 months, um, designed to see if, in fact, we on Earth, if we ever detect through early warning, through optical telescope or radar technology, an asteroid on a collision course with the Earth, similar to that which uh, took out the dinosaurs, if we, in our current infant state of space technology, i.e. still limited to rockets, if in fact we have the wherewithal to mount a defense, to move the asteroid out of the way and thereby save the Earth. Well, this is not going to do exactly that because the target has been chosen very specifically. Um, there's a large asteroid, several thousand feet across, and there's a smaller asteroid, which is a few hundred feet across, and they're orbiting each other. And the idea is for the DART mission, which stands for uh, um, Double Asteroid Redirection Test. If the DART mission crashes into the smaller asteroid, the idea is it will disturb the orbit of the smaller object orbiting the bigger one. Earth scientists with telescopes and long-term tracking will be able to monitor these orbit changes and thereby know how effective the so-called kinetic kill or kinetic redirection method of asteroid orbit changes really is. Now, you know that I, for some time, have said that by some bizarre occurrence, again, another coincidence, most if not all of the comets and asteroids that NASA has visited over the past several decades appear in fact to be ancient eroded ancient spacecraft, not rocks. Is it possible that the little asteroid going around the bigger asteroid in the Didymo system, that's the name of the big asteroid, is in fact not two asteroids 
together orbiting through space around the sun, but in fact a major object, a real asteroid, being orbited by a large ancient space habitat, in which case what will happen during the impact of our dark spacecraft with the smaller object, i.e. not a chunk of rock at all, but in fact an ancient, honeycombed, very eroded spacecraft of millions of years of age. That is going to be very interesting, and it will all play out on national television in about 10 months. But it's in this time frame where we've got the bizarreness of the pandemic, the fingerprints that, in fact, it's not from here, it's from someone out there. Then we have the Russian event, which, again, is highly anomalous. Why would the Russians try to create more debris in low Earth orbit? Or is it, in fact, another escalation of the invisible interplanetary war where someone is basically threatening to close off all access of occupants of Earth to low Earth orbit and beyond? Anybody using rockets, anybody using that primitive technology, including the civilians like Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos, who are aiming to create civilian efforts, non-governmental efforts to go to the moon, to Mars, and beyond. If you don't have anti-gravity, if you don't have control of a spacecraft so that you can avoid impact with one of these fragments from deteriorating smashed satellites, then basically we are bound to Earth. This would create the literal concept of a prison planet Earth. Is this another warning from someone upstairs that in fact, A, we're not alone, B, at least some of them are bad guys, and C, they want us to remain here and they are willing to up the stakes, up the ante to make sure that we do, again, under the rubric that only the highest levels of governments know what's really going on, and everybody else on the planet is kept in wondrous ignorance and the blissful um, inception of the idea that, in fact, we are alone, and there's nobody out there, and all of this is just happening by chance. Well, there's another data point. If you look at item number five, Apparently, when the DART mission left at dawn a couple of days ago, because of the role of Bruce Willis in one of those amazing uh, uh, Michael Bay films about going and uh, sending a human expedition to literally land on an asteroid and drill into it and bury an atomic device to blow it to kingdom come before it can destroy the Earth, well, Bruce Willis was invited formally by NASA to watch the launching of the NASA asteroid smashing mission. And for some bizarre reason, Bruce Willis turned down the NASA invitation. That's item number five. Now, I've seen a lot of rocket launches. I don't care how jaded you are, how much of the world you've seen, how much champagne you've drunk, or how many starlets you've dated, to turn down a freebie invitation to be only a couple of miles from the night launch of an amazing mission, which kind of has the imprimatur of one of your starring roles in Hollywood, just does not make sense. So is Bruce Willis aware that there are larger permutations to the invitation, that in fact the launching of the DART mission is not just a coincidence in this time frame? Uh, I guess we'll have to wait till we we uh, hear from Bruce Willis. Item number six. While all this is going on, a major paper was published by an astrobiologist claiming that humans may not just be on this planet, but could be available and living all over the universe in galaxies far, far away. And he invoked something called convergent evolution to demonstrate this with some equations, 
some hand-waving, and a lot of backing and filling. Now, the classic biological model, ever since um, uh, Carl Sagan started talking about life beyond the Earth, has been uh, basically based on a biologist at Harvard named George Gaylord Simpson, who said ultimately hundreds of times that if we were to recreate the history of Earth, we would never recreate the history of human beings, that intelligence on Earth would not look like us, would certainly not talk like us, would not be a biped like us, that it could have any shape or form. I mean, look at how bright octopuses are, etc., etc. This scientist is now saying that all of that is basically junk, that in fact, in a big galaxy, in a big universe, human bipedal forms, the humanoid shape and size and function would be replicated countless times. Now, as you know, I've said many times on this show that real aliens out there, meaning folks that do not share our DNA, are probably quite rare. That all those folks that have been interacting throughout history with human beings on Earth from interplanetary or interstellar sources are most likely members of a vast extended human family that doesn't just look like us, but they share our DNA because we're all cousins under the skin. We're dealing not with aliens, but with family ET. And into this rather remarkable position that I've held for many, many, many years, suddenly you have mainstream science saying, oh, humans may be present all over the universe. Well, isn't that special? In other words, is this a way of quietly, obliquely kind of sneaking up on the idea that A, we're not alone, and B, it's family? Which, of course, raises the question, the most serious fights, at least on Earth, among us Earth humans, occur in families. Are we looking at a family fight writ large? Are we looking at interstellar um, opponents and bickering kin and kith? And do some of them happen to live around the brilliant A-star Sirius? Again, to be discussed at great length in our future conversation. Um, I thought to close this segment that I would kind of go to this music because it was written decades ago. It was made very famous by uh, uh, the Carpenters, and it seems to, shall we say, approach the subject from the naive position of the 1970s, presaging our real awareness and the truth in the 21st century of planet Earth. We are on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland, and we shall return. In your mind you have capacities, you know To telepath messages through the vast unknown Please close your eyes and concentrate With every thought you think Upon the recitation we're about to sing Calling occupants of interplanetary craft Calling occupants of interplanetary most extraordinary craft
our objective from the beginning, um, if you look back through English history, the common law and equity both developed under different systems. Right. The common law was originally always the, the original system of law which was biblically based. And it was handed down orally from person to person over the years because there wasn't any, any printing press or writing until the Middle Ages, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas equity, however, what would happen is the common law at that time was extremely strict, very, yes. very harsh. <laughs> and most people fail to, to realize the, uh, the strictness. For, and I know, for example, um, one criminal charge sometimes could take four or five pages to lay it out of everyone. And if you missed a, a dotting an I, you, the, the guy could have the charge thrown out. So what developed was eventually people who thought that the common law was too harsh would petition the king for redress. And then the queen, king I should say, or queen, would determine if they were going to have mercy on him and what they were going to do. Um, sometimes they were thrown to the wind and said, too bad, you're out of luck. Other times they would get redress. And what would happen as more and more people started going to the king, he couldn't handle the workload. So he appointed it to the chancellor. And that he started doing it, which then became the court of chancery or equity. And of course, a number of principles developed in equity, I think there's 12 or 13 of them now, um, that developed over the years where it basically was a, uh, a separate form of, of law based on fairness and various principles that developed parallel to the common law. And then early in the 1900s, they were fused into one court because you had different courts, common law and you had equity. And they fused them into one court where the same court would apply both systems of law. And if there was a conflict, and only if there was a conflict, the common law would prevail. Hi, I'm David Kevin Lindsay from Canada. And I would urge everybody be able to support the other side of the news with the news media all over the world essentially promoting the government narrative on virtually every issue out there everybody needs an alternative source of accurate truthful information and the other side of the news provides that information that source of information from a variety of speakers all over the world with personal knowledge and experience that they can share with everybody in over 160 countries that they're involved and that they go to, to show everybody in the world what they are doing to support and encourage everybody else to also stand up for freedom issues throughout the world. I would urge everybody on a regular basis to listen and support the other side of the news. Saturday night, November 27th, 2021. Welcome, welcome back to The Other Side of Midnight. My guests this morning are really interesting and absolutely right on point to the conversation that I've uh, tried to give some background to at the top of the show here. So let me switch screens and I will tell you something very interesting. My first guest uh, of the two that we're going to be talking to this morning is David Sarita. David's been on the show uh, at least once before. He was born in Edmonton, Alberta, August 21, 1961, into a family of five boys being the second eldest. His father, Dr. Lynn Sarita, PhD, was an educational psychologist at UC Berkeley and uh, was dedicated to his children's spiritual growth as well as intellectual maturity. 
His influence on David is one of the greatest driving forces behind everything that David now does. David's mother, Linda Trafford, was a carpenter, an artist, a family lawyer in California, and that was not planned. That was a true hyperdimensional coincidence. A carpenter, hey, David, okay. Um, David decided at a certain age of his education to self-design his learning and consequently has studied world religions, meditation, philosophy, science, uh, physics, photography, screenwriting, art, film, music, consciousness, UFOs, crop circles, history, sacred sites, transpersonal psychology, yoga, and much, much more. And so without further ado, David, come on down. Welcome back. Well, that's, you know, that song you played really goes deep in me. When I hear Karen Carpenter, it's, she is just a gem. It's a real pleasure to be here with you, Richard, tonight. And, um, you know, I mean, hearing you and Art Bell in the early days and then me somehow getting on that show was, was really my dad's influence. You know, he was, he was really, you know, jabbing my ribs to get in on, on that show. And, and I used to listen to you falling asleep. <laughs> hey, sorry to interrupt, but can you get a little closer to your mic? We're getting an echo. Sure. Can you hear me better there? Much better, much better, yeah. Okay, I wanted to start with a point because you brought up COVID. And there are two amazing astronomical events that occurred right in the coincidence. And I, when I say coincidence, I don't mean negative coincidence. I mean mysterious. The dimming of Beetlejuice was between 2019 and 2020, and it, it comes right in that moment where this virus, which I believe is man-made, that's that's my personal belief. Well, when you say man-made, are we talking intelligent-made as opposed to human on Earth? Well, that's a really good question. Other, I mean, I when I worked, I worked for a physicist named Bogdan Castle Maglich, who was an MIT PhD on both nuclear fusion and contraband detection, including um, um, viruses, detecting viruses and and viruses that are made as weapons. So I had very high level access in the military because I did all the military communications for our contraband detection technology using fast neutrons. We we could detect anything. And in fact, we even proposed to the U.S. Army Fort Belvoir Division that we could set up detectors in all American cities. And if a, if a pathogen or a virus or a bioweapon was detected, an alarm would go off and we could isolate the virus. And they said, well, that'll never happen. So we don't really need to do that. But it's interesting that you, you know, our technology could do that. But the point is, Looking, there's two major stellar events. The dimming of Beetlejuice coming at the end of 2019 into 2020 is in perfect concert to the arrival of this supposed virus. Now, a second, and this one is quite stunning, this is a radio signal from Proxima Centauri called the BLC-1. And it was oh, the, the one they're now trying to explain away is a microwave oven or some terrestrial right. interference. Right, they, they tried to explain it away, but it took them forever to do it. And, I, and I'll tell you the reason, I'll tell you the reason they wrote it off is because, here, I'll, I'll explain it to you. So the signal comes in April, May of 2019, which is, again, is just before some of the earliest cases of COVID, which, which predate the December, the December date, right? So you know, coming into January of 2020. So here's what happens. This signal is the frequency of the signal right here is, um, this is really mind-blowing. It is 982.002 megahertz. Now, a frequency and a wavelength are the same thing. An electromagnetic frequency. Well, they're the inverse of each other. They're the inverse of each other, but they're actually the same thing. So you take the speed of light in inches divided by the – and, of course, you and I discussed this. Speed of light has a slight, slight variance. It's never the same. But you take the speed of light with its variance divided by the frequency, and you got to use the speed of light in inches. You have to have your resolution really good. And divided by this particular frequency of the BLC-1, it comes to 12 modern inches 
perfectly. Now, I was the first person to notice that, and I started posting it. And after I posted it is when they you came You mean up one with, English foot? One English foot. Not a Greek foot, not a Roman foot, mm -hmm. not a perfect, not using... A, in fact, I'd really like to resolve this to the to the primitive inch because it's 0.00106 different than the British inch, because it's 12 inches. And when I saw that, I went, "That's impossible." <laughs> a signal coming from Proxima Centauri, 4.2, 4.3 light years from Earth, so it takes that long for a radio wave to get here, with a a measurement of a wavelength that is would only mean something to humans. In, in fact. You know, modern humans, because or it should, or or and again, it it, it this was they canceled it and tried to cut. They came out with this whacked out theory after I was publicizing that. Did anybody notice that the wavelength is twelve inches, and and that meant it was either intended for us, and of course, the BLC one arrives just on cue. Before only months before this, this you know, wait a minute. So You're using an acronym BLC. What's that stand for? Well, that's that's the name of this signal. So if you go on Wikipedia or just Google capital BLC and the number one, and you'll see the story on Wikipedia. But right? what what does it stand for? Oh, oh, I actually don't know. It's the all I know is the signal came from Proxima Centauri. On in April and May of 2019, this is when they first detected it. They did not write this off for years. It took the only recently in the press did they try to write it off as some possible Earth-based. I mean, how would they? How would it take? Do them we years do we know what radio uh, astronomical facility uh, observatory actually detected yeah, this? Parks Radio Telescope. Which is the one in Australia, the big one. There you go. I think yeah. it's 210-foot dish, I think. Yeah. Parks Observatory that detected the BLC-1. And why so is it again, called BLC? Why, Richard? I, I keep going why back. Why, well, hang on, hang on. Why yeah, did they yeah. name it BLC? Um, breakthrough Listen Candidate 1. There you go. Oh, so this was a civilian effort the Breakthrough Listening Project right. using borrowed facilities, they actually they rent them, and they turned the antenna in the direction of Proxima Centauri, which is part of the three-star system, Alpha Centauri A and B, which is the closest star system to Earth, about 4.3 right. light years away. Mm -hmm. um, the two bigger stars are like, like the sun. One is slightly warmer, one is slightly cooler than the sun the third one proxima is a tiny red dwarf which is located some distance away but they're a system they all go around each other now when you say this signal came from proxima centauri did it come from that star system or did it come from the direction of proxima do we have the resolution to know which was which because if it just came from the direction, it could have come from much farther beyond and only have been a, quote, coincidence that Proxima was in the line of sight. See, it, it, here's what it says. The, the apparent shift in its frequency consistent with the Doppler effect was suggested be, to be inconsistent with what would be caused by the movement of Proxima B, a planet of Proxima Centauri. So they were trying to rule out what could cause it. But in the article, they never state that it's a 12-inch wavelength. They just state the frequency. It's very simple to do the math because the speed of light divided by the frequency is the wavelength, and the speed of light divided by the frequency is... is so this goes back to my opening thesis, which is that we're interacting not with strangers or aliens, but with family. Yeah, this is family. And, and there is a common language, a common measurement, a common set of constants. And the foot, we know, is not some arbitrary, you know, from King Henry VIII's elbow to his wrist, that kind of thing. It's right. part of a fundamental, very ancient, incredibly sophisticated uh, geodetic system on this planet 
which has clues all throughout the math and the measurements to hyperdimensional physics and the torsion field itself. In other words, this is not an accident. This is kind of like uh, McLuhan. The medium, yeah, in the- this case, the wavelength, is part of the deep, deep message. If you get a ruler and you measure your your index finger to the last joint, most of us are about one inch. Like so, so the inch and then the cubit. And let's go even further back to Oumuamua. Okay, so you go to well, Oumuamua. Wait, wait, wait! Before we get that, I I, I want to bring Jimmy on. I didn't mean to exclude okay. him from the conversation <laughs> um, because he's a key part of this. He's he's your oh, yeah. uh, co-leader in this intriguing civilian effort to communicate interplanetarily or extraterrestrial or interstellar-wise. Jimmy Blanchett is an accomplished scientist and an executive leader in major corporations for over 25 years' experience in quality control, operations, research, and engineering. He is a master black belt in Lean and Six Sigma with numerous accomplishments in operational excellence. He is also a licensed amateur radio operator He's been a ham since childhood, having a deep passion for building antenna arrays and exploring challenging modes of communication and frequencies. And in 2013, Jimmy became interested in moonbounce communications, an exotic and very challenging space communication technique which consists of bouncing powerful radio beams off the surface of the moon to establish two-way communications here on Earth. The first such uh, experiment was the U.S. Army back in 1946 out of Monmouth, the U.S. Army Signal Corps, uh, in a project called Project Diana. In 2016, Jimmy completed the development of a unique homemade triangular array rotatable polarity antenna system for moon bounce communications. As a result, he has published two scientific papers about his engineering creation. The antenna system is made to cover the page of a specialized magazine for amateur radio on VHF, UHF, and microwaves. In 2017, in April, Jimmy's antenna system was repurposed to make reliable contact with non-human intelligence via high-power transmissions throughout the solar system and into deep space. So, Jimmy Blanchett, come on down. Good morning, Richard. Hello, David. Uh, hi, everyone. So, it's such a pleasure being on your show, uh, Richard. I've uh, listened to uh, to you and Arbel many, many years ago, and uh, you know, hearing your voice reminds me that. So, it's such a pleasure <laughs> being on your show. Thank you for the opportunity. <laughs> okay, David, I'm sorry I interrupted, but I wanted to bring in Jimmy, because if you have... Anything to add to what we've said so far, you can do it now, or we'll let uh, David finish his explanation, and then we'll move into other areas. Well, I just want to say first that the way Jimmy and I met is magical, because I I had several approaches to interstellar or interstellar planetary communication techniques. And, of course, I was actually appointed director of the Tesla Foundation by Bogdan Castle Maglitch, who was from Yugoslavia and got his Ph.D. Um, at uh, um, MIT and was a professor at Rutgers. So I was very close to Maglitch and Seaborg and Murray Gelman and all these legendary physicists. In fact, Gelman lived in, in um, Santa Fe, New Mexico. I got to meet him there a few times. But nevertheless... It's magic how the universe works, because here's these two distant guys, Jimmy Blanchett and myself, who, unbeknownst to each other, have the same goal of, of, of reaching towards a new way, a different way of approaching interstellar planetary communication and inter-ET communication. And, and you know, like you, Richard, I, I don't just accept the classical dynamics of... You know, I mean, here's one of the greatest problems within all of UFOlogy. If these craft are coming into our airspace, and actually the Roswell incident begins in north uh, northern Idaho, which is right where I am. I'm just north of northern Idaho in the, in this great mountain range. This is where the United Airlines pilots saw it, and I've seen we've seen a lot of UFOs here. But the point is, 
we should be receiving or intercepting a communication signal of some kind, of some kind that may or may not be electromagnetic or that can possibly interface with magnetic systems and or electromagnetic systems using RF or radio frequencies. So when I was looking at the BLC-1 and I, and I saw it was a perfect foot, I said, this cannot be a negative coincidence. This is a positive coincidence. And when I saw the, the dimming of Betelgeuse was right on cue to the coronavirus, the birth of the of the the pandemic of this very yeah, but wait, wait, David, David, you have to un, uh, explain that the the Betelgeuse or Betelgeuse dimming is coincident in time to the outbreak, the known outbreak of COVID nineteen. But there's no real physical connection. It's just one of we those. We don't know because well, but there's be... no provable connection at the moment, right? Well, not necessarily, because it could be a dimming or an eclipsing of a very large, let's say, craft, because they don't really know what caused it to dim. They have theories. And believe me, I work for, you know, nuclear physicists, PhD physicists, and I've seen scientists argue over theories, just just like Avi Loeb, you know, who we both admire right now. I mean, he, he gets bombarded by opposing theories to his theory. So the mm. nature of science is argumentation I just David I, I just want to keep this as rigorous as possible there are literally thousands of variable stars mm -hmm. in, in, including one called Myra and Myra is actually remember the famous Star Trek episode where the Enterprise goes to uh, a planet orbiting the the supergiant star Myra which is Myra the Wonderful its Greek name in the star catalogs is Omicron SETI. So if Ooh. we're looking at this Omicron variant now, is right. it connected via someone's very whacked out Emily Dickinson modality of thinking, you know, tell all the truth, but tell it slant? Is it connected to that episode of Star Trek? Again, you can reach and reach and reach and you lose people because they do not see the connections. So I try to stay with metonymic connections, which can be proven. Your mm -hmm. math connecting the average speed of light currently measured with the wavelength of the Proxima signal to the terrestrial imperial foot, that's science. Everything yeah. else at the moment is speculation. Let's stay in the realm of yeah, things no, I appreciate we can prove. I, I love where your mind where your mind goes, Richard. But the, what I'm saying is this is how Jimmy and I kind of magnetized together. And then when I met Jimmy... Well, how did you meet? How did you physically meet? Because you're only, well, you're only the, working together, what, nine, nine or ten months? Nine or ten months. But the way we met is he heard me on a program. Ah, okay. He said, I got to get a hold of this guy and tell him what I'm doing. And when I saw what Jimmy was doing, I was so blown away. I was so blown away because he was using a particular frequency of 144.1 megahertz on handheld radios. And a phenomenon was occurring on the radio that was was not producing a radio frequency. There was no radio frequency energy in the radio when these radios were chirping like birds in response to a language, a tonal language that Jimmy would send out. In fact, it's best to let Jimmy come in and I was going to say, Jimmy, how did you get into interstellar communications by means of radio? Okay. Uh... There's a little bit of story about it. I'll try to be succinct. Uh, we have three hours, I, I, you know. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, you know, I, as uh, you mentioned a bit earlier, I became interested first in, in moon bounce communication in 2013 and got, you know, um, I started building my antenna system uh, to make that happen. It's a very challenging mode of communication, very exotic, and requires a lot of expensive equipment. And what kind of technology obviously. are you using? For all the hams out well, there. Okay. Well, for it's typically uh, for this kind of communication, you need a beam antenna, Yagi beams antenna, depending on the frequency that uh, you know the you're transmitting on. So it's not a big dish. It's basically a rod with a spiral around it. It's uh, well, it it 
depending on the frequency, uh, like on 432 megahertz, for instance, or 1.296 gigahertz, uh, typically people will use DISH, right? Because the DISH is very uh, convenient and makes more sense for high frequencies, very high Mm -hmm. frequencies, ultra high frequencies. When you get in the lower frequencies, you know, and the 144 megahertz, uh, the two meter band, as we call it in the amateur radio, um, is really typically more with Yagi antennas, which is a long, you know, long rod, as you mentioned, but there are elements. There are many elements along that rod, which focuses the beam, just like a laser beam, just like a dish does in a sense, it's done in a different, bit of different fashion with the Yagi beam. So all that is really to focus. Just, it's just like using a laser pointer. You know, for those who use it like a laser pointer, like a little laser, right? All that energy is focused on a small, you know, concentrating like a small laser beam, if you will. So it's a bit the same principle. It's to focus and, and increase the gain of the antenna. So what it does, the antenna itself, um, essentially will, with this focus, will focus the electromagnetic radio wave in a very specific direction. So this way with um, a simple antenna like that, uh, which can be quite large, by the way, because mine was as big as my house, uh, but, you know, with an antenna like that, and you, you can feed it, you know, typically with, you know, one kilowatt or 1.5 kilowatt. Well, if you, your antenna system has a magnification or an amplification factor, if you will, of a thousand, well, your 1.5 kilowatt will, will turn into a 1.5 million watts of effective isotropic radiated power. But so you is, have to be, you have to be in the beam to uh, detect that, right? Yes, it, it goes in a very specific direction, and that's why, uh, you know, when, you know, if we do moon bounce, when I do moon bounce communication, for instance, I really have to beam the antenna towards the moon very specifically and then follow the moon, and it's, it's, you know, as it's moving in the sky. So, totally. So this really is a kind of a replication of Project Diana, where the Ar- Army Signal Corps tried to bounce coherent modulated signals off the moon, with a very large antenna at Fort Monmouth so that they could get communication bounced off the moon and received some other place on Earth long before satellites. I mean, this was 1946. Exactly, exactly. That allowed at the time communication. There was obviously no internet or nothing, you know, satellites. So, so and we're, 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 we're coming up to a break at the top of the hour, but I just want to point out to people that from 46 to now, the technology has so developed and the prices have so fallen that a, quote, amateur citizen scientist can literally send a signal from Earth to the moon, bounce it off the moon, and in the reflected beam, pick it up anywhere on the planet with coherent communications. Amazing. Tell you what, guys, hold it there. We're at the top of the hour. My guests this morning are David Sarita and Jimmy Blanchett, and we're talking about interstellar communication, which is kind of what this is talking about. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. Transmit thought energy far beyond the norm. You close your eyes, you concentrate together. That's the way to send a message. We declare world contact day. Thanks for listening to this exciting first hour. Now, the second and third hour of the show is available to Club 19.5 members only. Please support the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 and join our very interesting community. To do that, please visit the website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350-plus shows that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed 
that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward. And boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out.